join me as we pray before we get started here? Heavenly Father, the cross is where we must go to find our hope, our life, our being, our forgiveness. And I thank you so much, Lord, that you have given that option to us, Lord, as, as a matter of grace, a gift. You're about to enter on into a season, Lord God, of celebrating the grace that came through the cross and remembering the brutality of it. And in the process of that, Lord God, I recognize that there was a cosmic spiritual battle going on when all of that took place. And we are very aware of it. But I pray, our Father, that we would celebrate the gift of grace and not be discouraged. Not be discouraged because of the things that are going on all around us in the world or in our particular lives. But that we would remember that we have a Savior who lives. He's no longer on the cross, but He rose from the dead. Point us to that Savior, Jesus. Help us, Lord God, to be mindful of our very great enemy. And so as we look into this word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes, the eyes of our hearts. Open our ears that we might hear what the Spirit says to the church. For it's in Christ's holy and precious name that I pray. Amen. Well, Max Lucado, one of the great writers of our time, in The Applause of Heaven, an earlier book of his, in his inimitable way, tells a story, and he begins by saying, by describing the fact that he was a professional thief, this thief that Lucado writes about, and his name stirred fear as the desert wind stirs tumbleweeds. He terrorized the Wells Fargo stage line for 13 years, roaring like a tornado in and out of the Sierra Nevadas, spooking the most rugged frontiersmen. And in journals from San Francisco to New York, his name became synonymous with the danger of the frontier. And now during his reign of terror between 1875 and 1883, he's credited with stealing the bags and the breath away from 29 different stagecoach crews. And he did it all without firing a single shot from his gun. His weapon was his reputation. His ammunition was intimidation. A hood hit his face and no victim ever saw him. No artist ever sketched his features. No sheriff could ever track his trail. He never fired a shot, never took a hostage. He didn't have to because his presence was enough to paralyze everyone. His name was Black Bart, a hooded bandit armed with a deadly weapon. Lucado goes on to say, he reminds me of another thief, one who's still around. You know him and I know him. Oh, we've never seen his face. You couldn't describe his voice or sketch his profile, but when he's near, you know it in a heartbeat. If you've ever been in the hospital, for example, you felt the leathery brush of his hand against yours. If you've ever sent someone who was following you 
you felt his cold breath down your neck. If you've awakened late at night in a strange room, it was his husky whisper that stole your slumber. You know him. It was this thief who left your palms sweaty as you went for the new job interview. It was this con man who convinced you to swap your integrity for popularity. And it was this scoundrel who whispered in your ear as you left the cemetery, you might be next. He's the black bard of the soul. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't come for your diamonds. He won't go after your car. He wants something far more precious than that. He wants your peace of mind. He wants your joy. His task is to take your courage and to leave you timid and trembling. And his modus operandi is to manipulate you with the mysterious. Taunt you with the unknown. Fear of death. Fear of failure. Fear of tomorrow. His arsenal is vast. And his goal? To create cowardly, joyless souls. He doesn't want you to make the journey to the mountain. He figures if he can rattle you enough, you will take your eyes off the peaks and settle for a dull existence in the flatlands. Who is the author of fear? Who's the author of fear? The enemy of our souls is the author of fear, Satan, the devil. He knows that once fear has gripped our hearts, guess what runs out the door? Faith. When fear has gripped your heart, faith runs out the door. Faith declares in no uncertain terms that God is in control. Is that right? Fear, however, makes us question if he's even around. Our enemy is very clever. He banks on the fact that once fear begins to work, a kind of spiritual paralysis sets in. And we can't pray, we can't fight, we begin to lose the desire for scripture, and our arms grow a little weary of gripping the sword and holding up the shield. Folks, as I've recently been reminded, you cannot wield the sword of the spirit and hold up the shield of faith if you're clutching onto fear. When you're clutching onto fear, the enemy will always use it to his advantage. I'd like you to get out your Bibles, if you have them with you, because I'm warning you right now, you're going to need them this morning. You're going to use them this morning. We've got a lot of scripture, and I want you to see the scriptures. We're going to actually turn to them and read them. So, if I cut this message off halfway through it because it's taking too much time, we'll finish it up next time. But I want you to use your Bible. Remember what your Bible is? According to Ephesians chapter 6, what is it? It's your sword. It's your cut and thrust weapon. It's your dagger. Sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, Ephesians 6 says. And we're going to use it this morning. Over the last few weeks, I've been talking to you about being prepared for battle. We're in a war, one which is waged not against adversaries of flesh and blood, right? But spiritual adversaries. However, if we're intimately related to Jesus Christ by faith, he's equipped us with an array of invincible weapons, which we went through one at a time. His armor, 
And I've done, gone to great lengths to illustrate that spiritual armor with a variety of visuals, images, swords, toothpicks, video clips, dramatic readings, etc., etc., right? All of that hopefully has been not only entertaining, but practically helpful for you. But folks, it's all been in vain if you and I cannot see the enemy for who he really is. If we can't identify the adversary, if we don't know and understand the truth about him, we will not know how to effectively deal with him or to use our weapons that we've been given. Like high-powered weapons in the hands of a blind man, they will be absolutely ineffective and virtually useless, even counterproductive against the enemy. So today it's my goal to begin to bring some closure to this series with a briefing on our common adversary. You may know some of this stuff already, and that's good. But I'll tell you this, a refresher won't hurt. As a matter of fact, it's my conviction that most of us have grown so accustomed to the presence of this enemy in our world and in our lives and we have been so lulled into believing his lies and underestimating his influence that we have been rendered virtually almost impotent in the fight. We need to become reacquainted with these facts. Because identifying the truth about your adversary gives you confidence to overcome your adversary. Okay? Following me so far? Today I want to brief you on four vital, well, actually we're only going to look at two major vital pieces of information about your enemy, but in the midst of those two major things, there's going to be a whole lot of other information. So take notes, at least mental notes, because these pieces of information about your enemy can literally save your spiritual life as you engage him. The first thing I want you to realize about your enemy is that he is a deceitful enemy. How many of you knew that already? How can we still keep getting deceived? Satan and his hosts are liars. Liars. They seek to delude you in any way possible, and they will even use religious trappings to do it. Jesus had some pretty intense words about Satan's delusional tactics which were not well received by the religious leaders. It's not the world that rejected what Jesus had to say about the adversary. It was the church, so to speak. It was the religious leaders of his day. Turn to John chapter 8, if you would. John chapter 8. Follow along with me as I read from verse 37. Jesus says... You're going to get a workout today. You can hear the pages turning. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's offspring or children, do then the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. 
You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative. But he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Don't you get it? It's because you can't hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. How do you think they like that? You're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Oh, my goodness. No question that they wanted to crucify him, isn't it? Skip down to verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus' statement in verse 44 has powerful implications here. Look at verse 44 again. You are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He doesn't stand in the truth, Jesus says. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and he is the father of lies. You know what the implications of verse 44 are for us? For anyone whose life is intertwined with deception and lying, you can figure it out. If that is a practice that you've come to adopt, if you lie to your spouse, if you lie to your kids, if you lie to your parents, if you lie to your pastors, if you lie to your boss, if you lie to, your, to the government on your taxes, or even to yourself, you are imitating the enemy who is the father of lies, and you are submitting yourself to his deceptive control. Plain and simple. Verse 34, look at what verse 34 says. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And when he says commit sin, he's talking about ordering your life that way. If you continue and habitually commit sin, you're the slave of sin. Jesus said that he, Jesus himself, is the truth. His word is the truth and it is only the truth that will make you free. Amen? And if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. That's what it says in chapter 8, verse 36. You'll be truly free. Now, have you ever wondered, when you're reading the Scripture, why Jesus and Paul silenced demon-possessed people who were actually proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One of God? Have you ever wondered about that? Look at Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Luke chapter 4, in verse 41. 
Start in verse 40. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Is that confusing to you? They're preaching the truth about Christ, but Christ would not allow them to speak. Turn in act to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 16 for a moment. Verse 16. Luke writes in Acts 16, 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, he kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Okay? She's actually telling people that Paul and these, the guys he was with were telling them the way to salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. One more scripture in Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Now, why did Jesus silence these people who were actually telling the truth about who he was? Well, Jesus didn't need any help from demonic voices to prove who he was. Actually, their testimony about him would only fuel the fire for those who rejected him in claiming that he was operating in league with Satan. Right? Following that? Mark chapter 3, as a matter of fact, verse 22. But the teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, quote, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Friends, our adversary absolutely knows the truth about Jesus. You believe that? The demons know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they tremble at that knowledge, according to James chapter 2, verse 19. It's not that they don't believe it. They do believe it. They accept it. They know it. Both Jesus and Paul silenced their speech, not because it was a lie, but because they reject and hate the truth, and in these cases, make the truth seem that the truth is a lie, because they are liars. Crafty isn't Satan. Here's something I want you to ponder. Think about this. No demon ever contested or questioned Christ's deity in the scriptures. None has ever denied his right to rule as king or judge as Lord of all. Only men and women have done that. Demons have not done that. 
Our adversary is a deceptive and crafty enemy. He will lure us into delusion any way that he can. Some ways are obvious. Some ways are not so obvious. Here's an obvious one. He deceives us through witchcraft and false spirituality. Turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament now in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now you may think, ah, this is Old Testament stuff. We're too intellectual for this. Let's, let's read this for a moment. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 11. When you enter the land the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, who uses divination, who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. You catching that? Think that's around today? You'd be surprised how many people in the church utilize these kinds of people. And they think it's okay. How can a person that is Christ as their Lord and King submit themselves to a fortune teller or a spiritist or a medium? Again, you might say, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. We're too smart for that. We've gotten beyond the days of the Salem witchcraft trials. Fact is, we haven't. We haven't gotten beyond those days. Every year in Salem, believe it or not, modern-day witches and mediums gather for conferences and high celebration. I'd venture a guess that many of us in this room are acquainted with people who regularly, regularly now practice Forms of witchcraft, and you are not even aware of it. They may not even be aware of it. But beyond the obvious forms, we need to understand what the biblical concept of a witch really was. You must move your thinking beyond colonial New England days and realize that the Old Testament concept of a witch was far far different than that. The word translated witch in the Old Testament refers to one who knows, one who prognosticates, one who foretells the future. That's what the word means. By means other than a revelation from God, i.e. by submitting themselves to demonic control. And again, I tell you, this happens all the time today. We may think that this was something practiced only ages ago, but I can assure you that attempting to gain knowledge of the future or deeper spiritual information apart from the revelation of God is very much alive today and practiced again by believers as well as non-believers. Beyond fortune tellers, mediums, psychic hotlines, and the like are so-called Christian ministers that employ all kinds of deceptive and extra-biblical means to bring masses of unsuspecting people under control and submission to themselves. They are false teachers who appear 
as ministers of righteousness, but are not. So, one way that Satan deceives us today is he deceives us through witchcraft and false spirituality. The second thing that we find in the Old Testament is that, uh, actually in the scriptures, this is, one's a New Testament verse, that he deceives us through false teachers and prophets. Now that's one we can get our head around, right? False teachers and prophets. Turn to 2 Corinthians in your scriptures. 2 Corinthians. In verse 11, uh, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. Paul talks to them about some people that were plaguing their church. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Get that? Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now, you don't think that the adversary is going to stroll across enemy lines into our own camp dressed as the enemy, do you? Do you? That would be ridiculous. He'd be too easily identifiable. No, he's going to appear convincing. He's going to be believable. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24, Jesus warned us that these false teachers and false Christs will perform signs to mislead even the elect if it were possible. They're going to present themselves as brilliant. Satan is going to do that. His character yet never changes even though his outward appearance may. No matter how you slice it, folks, no clever arrangement of bad eggs can make a good omelet. Right? A half-truth is always a full lie. False teachers proliferate false doctrine and get away with it because a large portion of the church doesn't know the Scripture as they should. You hear me? Or even how to tell whether someone is proclaiming truth or error. You need to sharpen your sword. We all do. We need to be sharpening it daily, all the time. Especially now. Because these are deceitful days. And the enemy knows he has a short time. And he's getting more and more crafty and deceptive. Listen to Paul's scathing rebuke of the Corinthian believers who were plagued by these false teachers claiming to speak the truth but leading people astray. It's in 2 Corinthians if you're still there. In chapter 11, just back up to verse 1. Now remember, this is already in the first century. The church is already succumbing to this. These false teachers. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. He says, For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, 
or you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You bear this beautifully. Paul says, I'm afraid that as the, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how to recognize a false prophet? Are you quick to say yes or think it in your mind? you know how to recognize a false prophet? Now, the Old Testament gave the nation of Israel some very important guidelines. Actually, two very clear ones. And we would do very well to familiarize ourselves with them. So, turn back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 18 again. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 this time. This is guideline number one. Anyone who speaks presumptuously in the Lord's name is a false teacher. Following? Anyone who speaks presumptuously in the Lord's name is a false teacher. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But if the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Okay, verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. You following that? You know what that is a test of? That is a test so you know when somebody has not spoken the Lord's revelation. It doesn't say that you'll recognize it when he has. This is the test of when they have not spoken. The word which the Lord has not spoken. If a prophecy spoken in Christ's name does not come true, it is clearly false teaching. Notice, however, this test, again, is not identifying what the Lord has spoken, but what has not spoken. This is critically important to understand. Because if the prophecy does come true, following me now? If the prophecy does come true, it does not necessarily mean the prophet is a true prophet. Okay? That leads us to the next guideline, guideline number two, that anyone who seeks to lead us away from Jesus Christ, no matter how accurate or convincing the sign is a false teacher. Deuteronomy 13, back up to chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Why? Even if it's come true, that prophet was counseling rebellion. If you compare 1 Samuel 15, 23... It says, for as the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. The two are the same. Verse 6 even goes on to name family members. 6, 7, and 8 and on down. If your brother or mother, son or son or daughter or the wife you cherish or your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your father have known of the gods of the people who are around you, near you or far from you. You shall not yield to him or listen to him. You get that? Even the people closest to us. Now these are very harsh words, okay? And I'm not saying that we need to go out and start putting all the false prophets to death. This was the Old Testament law. This is New Testament grace. All I'm trying to do is to tell you how you can identify them. As you probably figured out, this is an equipping message. This is not an entertaining message today. Okay? They serve to show us how serious that God is about His truth. Throughout Christendom today, well-known authors and speakers who have deceived thousands of professing Christians by their grandiose claims, prophecies, and seemingly powerful signs. And yet they're leading people to themselves or to some other God of their own creation, some of them flat out deny the deity and the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ and present him as Savior, you know, whose sole reason for coming is to make us healthy, wealthy, and happy in this life. Jeremiah has a lot to say about that. In Jeremiah chapter 5, Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 5. See, if you're taking notes, I'm giving you a whole lot of fuel here for dealing with some of the people maybe in your sphere of reference who are actually following false teachers. Jeremiah 5, verse 26. For wicked men are found among, notice what it says, my people. My people, God says. They watch like fowlers, lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men, like a cage full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They're fat, they're sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, on such a nation, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? Now here's the key verse. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And here's the kicker. And my people love it so. Verse, chapter 6, verse 10.
To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Verse 13, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were not even ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them, and they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? These are the kinds of teachers that lead the weak and the unsuspecting away from the serving the true God who desires our repentance from sin, our trust, and our complete love and devotion, no matter what our circumstances are here. Jesus didn't come to make us all wealthy, to make us all healthy, to make us all happy. Not in this life, anyway. We are wealthy, beyond measure, spiritually. We are healthy, beyond measure, soulfully. And we can be at peace. And someday, someday, we will be totally happy, totally prosperous, totally healed. That's what Jesus came to do. That day's coming subsequent to this life when eternal bliss, perfect health, and complete contentment will be the order of the day but not yet. There's one more guideline that I want to give you, and it's found in the New Testament this time. It actually comes from the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Guideline number three is simply this. Jesus gives it to us. Anyone who does not strive for and promote obedience to the will of God is a false teacher. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Isn't that a scary verse to anybody? Think about that verse a lot. It's not just people who say with their lips, Lord, Lord. It's not even just people who say with their lips, Lord, Lord, and perform signs in the Lord's name. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
God says. Listen, friends, I've told you this before, and your adversary is vying for your mind, okay? It's your mind that Satan wants, because if he can control that, he can control your will. And he attempts to deceive us by the obvious witchcraft, false teachers, but also by the not so obvious. He can also lure us away ever so slowly by the everyday erosion of our culture. And so he deceives us through cultural relativism. It's another way that he deceives us. See, the enemy wants to break down our resolve to stand apart from sin. You believe that? Let's break it down. And so we begin to unwittingly accept the cultural norms of the day, even though they are completely contrary to biblical truth. And I think we're not as alert to the deception as we ought to be. Either that or we just don't care. I heard a great illustration of this some, some years ago. It was an experience related by Dennis Rainey in a talk that he gave one time. And I mean, this is so relevant. We all, we all struggle with this. But when it gets put front and center to us, you'll see what your reaction is when I, say, when I tell you the story. You'll either push away or you'll be convicted by it. Dennis and his teenage daughter at the time had gone out to, on a date together to the mall, thinking it would be a great treat for his daughter. He decided to take her to buy a new sweater at Abercrombie & Fitch. So as his daughter was trying on the sweater, Dennis made his way to the cashier to wait in line to make the purchase and as he was standing there, he noticed on the wall, if you've ever been to that store, or even by that store, right? Larger than life-size picture of a hard-body somebody. Well, he noticed it's a hard-body teenage boy, back to standing knee-deep in the water with his arms resting on a dock. And Dennis says he was butt-naked. Appalled, he asked to speak to the manager of the store. See, I, I, I get away from people like that usually. It's like... <laughs> I wish I was that bold that I would go in there and rip into the manager, but I'm not that kind of a person. But anyway, appalled, he asked to speak to the manager of the store, and he calmly explained to the young manager that the picture was offensive and obscene. Calm. The guy goes, who's, by whose standards? And he says, by any thinking moral person. Well, that's your opinion. But I don't agree. About that time, Dennis's daughter came up to the counter with the sweater, and Dennis continued with the manager. You don't think that picture is obscene? He says, to, okay, then I want you right now, right here in front of my teenage daughter and this entire store to get into the same pose. Go ahead, drop your pants. <laughs> now, that was some years ago. I wouldn't dare challenge somebody to that today, because they'd probably do it, right? The manager, picking up his chin from somewhere on the floor, said, No, I won't. Why not? Dennis said. You seem to think this is an appropriate way to increase sales. Come on, let's see it. The manager refused. Rainey, making his point, continued, It's a good thing you didn't do it because I'd have you arrested for indecent exposure. Of course, they didn't buy the sweater, and his daughter wasn't real happy on the ride home with her dad, but the point is well made. How quickly are we lured into buying into Satan's sly deception? How many of us have opted to ignore the flat-out sinful use of man's base desires to promote immorality and unwittingly support this crap 
by spending the money so our kids will be in. Right? You heard it. I said crap from the pulpit. <laughs> be on the radio, too. You see, we just turn our eyes away from the picture and toward our wallets. Is that right? I've done it myself. I won't lie. We're so deceived. Either that or we just don't care, like I said. C.S. Lewis once said of our adversary, like a good chess player, he is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. Right? The antidote to all this is to focus on the truth. The truth of Scripture. And make it real in our daily lives. If our adversary is out to control our minds, then we must counter that by keeping ourselves rooted in the mind of Christ. Amen? Keep seeking those things which are above, not the things which are on the earth. Keep your mind fixed on the heavenly places, the things in the heavenly places which God has given us, where Christ is. Paul says in Colossians 3, For as soon as a man forsakes the mind of Christ, he's liable to demonic deception. This is what the Apostle John wrote. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Amen. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. And I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, if you're a believer. And you all know, it's not a mystery. You don't have to be deceived. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist and the one who denies the Father and the Son. 
Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Oh, that is such an important verse. It is such an important verse. This completely delineates what makes a Christian and what makes a non-Christian. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You cannot truthfully love God, the true God, and deny the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what it says. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Okay? John was very clear here. He wrote these things concerning those who are trying to deceive them. And, and we have this word made more sure. Well, I'm not going to move on to my next major point. But you know what? What John says here and what we need to remember is that Christ, the good shepherd, has given his life for us. And he also left us with his spirit and his revealed word of truth. And by those tools, the church will prevail and endure. How alert are you to the dangers of your adversary? Satan is a deceitful enemy. He's a destructive enemy. That was, that's the next point. And then the two more points after that is he's also, and this is the hope, he's also a destined and defeated enemy. He's destined and defeated. We have the means to overcome him through the sacrifice and the sustenance of Jesus Christ when we have accepted him by faith. After Revelation describes that war in heaven between the angels and Satan's downfall to the earth, it tells how the saints overcame him. Very clearly in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and the fact that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's how they overcame him. I said a couple of weeks ago to you that the most dangerous man or woman on the face of the earth is someone who has reckoned with their own death. All men die, writes John Eldridge. Few men ever really live. Sure, you can create a safe life for yourself and end your days in a rest home babbling on about some forgotten misfortune. But I agree with John. I'd rather go down swinging. Wouldn't you? Besides, the less we're trying to save ourselves, the more effective of a warrior that you and I can be. Because we don't fear. Identifying the truth about your adversary gives you the confidence to overcome your enemy. He's a destined and defeated foe, 
we're going to talk about next week. Friends, you don't have to fear the enemy any longer. God has identified what you need to know about him in order to resist him and stand firm. And he's also identified the way in which you must come to that place of deliverance and victory. Through a faith relationship with Jesus who willingly gave his life for you. And he promised that he would never leave you or he'd never forsake you. That doesn't mean he's just going to be hanging around with you. That's not what those verses mean in Matthew 28, 20 and Hebrews 13, 5. When Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you even to the end of the age. You know what he was saying? He's saying, I'll fight with you and I will fight for you. You don't have to fear because the gates of hell will not prevail as Jesus builds his church. By the way, remember Black Bart? The one that instilled so much fear in everyone? As it turns out, he wasn't anything to be afraid of either. When the hood came off, there was nothing to fear. When the authorities finally tracked down that thief, they didn't find a bloodthirsty bandit from Death Valley. They found a mild-mannered druggist from Decatur, Illinois. Really? The man the papers pictured storming through the mountains on horseback was in reality so afraid of horses, he rode to and from his robberies in a buggy. How about that? His name was Charles E. Bowles. The bandit who never once fired a shot because he never once loaded his gun. Let's go to prayer. And what I would like to do right now is this, this prayer that I found. It's inscribed in Chester Cathedral. It's called the Knight's Prayer. Let's pray together. My Lord... I am ready on the threshold of this new day to go forth armed with thy power, seeking adventure on the high road to right wrong, to overcome evil, to suffer wounds and endure pain if need be, but in all things to serve thee bravely, faithfully, joyfully, that at the end of the day's labor, kneeling for thy blessing, thou mayest find no blot upon my shield. Amen.